0: Please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to read this passage and just tell you that this is where we are going to end up this morning. But we're going to cover some other ground before we get to it. I want to read for you Luke 20, beginning at verse 45. And then through the first four verses of chapter 21, Luke 20, verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. May God grant us grace as we hear and then think about his word. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you that you do give us help when we need help, and we confess that we need help this morning. so, use your word um, in conjunction with the sweet, gracious influences of your spirit to change our hearts and change our minds and, and even change our patterns of behavior. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. This uh, is the fourth message that um, I am preaching in this series on financial stewardship, and um, I want to say again, and this really is kind of the last one, so I guess I've lied again. Somebody thought I, saw, I said it was going to be three, and then I said it was going to be five, and it's actually just going to kind of be four, although as we head into Advent, the first Sunday in Advent next week, I do want us to look at 2 Corinthians 8, and particularly the text in which Jesus becomes the model for our giving, he who was rich, who became poor, that so so that through his poverty we might become rich, I don't know, four and a half, whatever, um, but this is the fourth in this series, and uh, I, I do want to say, again, I, I, I've been encouraged to say this too, that um, that if you are here for the first time or the second time, I I just want to say this is the first time in five plus years that we've done a series like this. I've preached a couple of sermons uh, over the course of the last five or so years related to these matters of financial stewardship, but uh, this is the first time I've done a series. And so if you're here for the first time, please, please understand, please, and I really ask you to, to, to hear me as I say this. Please don't leave this morning and and come to the wrong conclusion that, that that's just one of those churches that wants to talk about nothing but me and my money. And that's not the case. It, it really isn't. There are several reasons for this series which I'm not going to repeat. I've enumerated them the last uh, few weeks and I don't want to do that again. Um, I, I just want us to to understand that uh, as a church I feel a responsibility and, and our elders feel a responsibility that we all kind of be on the same page with respect to these things. Uh, and and the big reason, honestly, that I want for us to consider these things uh, as a single element in what we refer to as the whole counsel of God for which I have a responsibility Um, But but the single biggest reason that I want for us to be thinking about these things is because I want to see the influence of the gospel enlarged and extended here among us, but through us out into the world. Um, And here's the here's the big picture thing. God has made us partners with himself in this. He has made us partners with himself in the business of extending the kingdom of his son here and from here out into the world. As we've said this morning, he is rescuing and redeeming a people. He is demonstrating in and through the gospel that there is a better way. He is making an assault repeatedly on the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. He is rescuing people out of that kingdom. He is bringing them into the light and life and the freedom of the kingdom of King Jesus. It is in the gospel and through the gospel that the God of heaven and earth is showing the world that there's a different way and a better way. And he's not using power structures. He's not using political agendas. He's not using the strong and the mighty. He is not using the rich and the famous. He is using poor, weak, helpless, frail fools like us to extend this kingdom. Do we need proof of this? We're just one week away from Advent. Isn't it stunning to us? Isn't it striking to us? That when God decides to change the world, when God decides to give the world a Redeemer, that Redeemer comes in weakness and humility. He comes to obscurity. He comes in poverty. His life is a failure. He dies an ignominious death in shame and humiliation. He's a pauper dependent upon the the graciousness of others. He doesn't associate with the rich and famous, the powerful and the influential. He associates with the weak. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Rome. He doesn't go to power centers. He goes to an obscure place like Vero Beach, Florida. Nazareth. People said of Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? But it is in and through this Redeemer whom God gives to the world in weakness and shame and humility. It is in and through this Redeemer that God shatters the power of evil and He crushes the head of the evil one. And he purchases forgiveness and redemption for his people. And we, along with tens of millions of our brothers and sisters in the world right now, are being gathered up into and have become heralds of this story. And I just want a bigger piece of it. I'm sorry. I'm covetous. I'm covetous of greater gospel influence in your life, in my life, in this county, in this state, in this nation, and throughout the world. I'm covetous of that. And I'm covetous that we enjoy and participate in the years to come more fully in this great and never-ending story that God initiated in Genesis 3.15 in response to the rebellion of the man and the woman and which has continued across the centuries and the millennia right down to the present and which will continue into eternity after Christ's return and after he finishes what he has started and finishes, finishes what he is in the process of accomplishing right now, which is the redemption of the world. That's the story we're involved in, and I just want a bigger piece of the action. For us. For us. So that's why we're doing this. And let me just quickly review where we've been. And, and I feel the need to do this because I want so much for this to be in its broader context. We've looked at three different things through these first three weeks. First, we've looked at the fact that giving is gratitude to God for God's goodness. That's the story of Abel. Why did Abel bring What he brought. Why did he bring the first and the best of his flocks? He brought the first and the best as an act of worship, expressing gratitude to God for God's largesse, for his lavish goodness after the fall, when it's not the thing you would expect against the backdrop of sin and rebellion. But God shows his continuing goodness and faithfulness by prospering Abel. And Abel, as an act of worship, as an act of worship, expresses gratitude to God for God's lavish goodness. I'll just tell you a story, a little story. You can ask Barb about it. She'll be happy to tell you about it. She will tell you that in the course of her years as a Christian, She's nobody's hero about these things. Neither am I. But she will tell you that in the course of her years as a Christian, four decades as a Christian, she has come to the place where giving back to God as an act of worship has become a precious thing to her. Look, I'm not trying to pin a badge on my wife. I'm just telling you that as God's grace begins to grip us, it changes us. And my wife has experienced that change. She asked me this morning, is this the day to bring the check? I said, yes it is. And look, please understand, I'm not, this is not a time for applause. We are all debtors to God's great goodness. And we're simply seeking to emulate, able, as he responds to God for God's lavish goodness as an act of worship in gratitude. Second, giving his gratitude to God for his grace. That's what Exodus 36 is about. I love that story. The people of God experiencing God's grace, not receiving what they did deserve in the context of their spiritual harlotry and idolatry, repudiating the God who had redeemed them. Worshipping false and pagan gods, they should have received judgment. But they didn't. And that is God's grace. But that's only half of what God's grace is. They didn't get what they did deserve, and they did get what they didn't deserve. They got God's very presence living in a tent as they lived in tents, dwelling in their midst, identifying with them, accompanying them, walking with them through the wilderness until they came into what God promised, this great and glorious promised land flowing with milk and honey. That's us, my friends. We are Israel in the midst of a wilderness, walking from our deliverance in the direction of the promised land. But God doesn't live in a tent anymore. He doesn't live in buildings. It is His good pleasure to take up residence in the hearts and the souls of His people. You are the temple. And He will dwell in you and remain with you for the rest of your earthly existence until he brings you into the enjoyment of the better promised land. And so what is giving? It is gratitude to God for God's lavish grace in forgiving us and in being pleased to dwell among us. And here's the third thing, the tithe, the tenth from Malachi. What I wanted to see last week, wanted us to see last week, is that the tithe designed to support the preservation and proclamation of the gospel in Israel. The tithe designed to preserve and proclaim, support the preservation and proclamation of the gospel in Israel. Meaning, in Israel, there is a place where a holy God can be reconciled to an unholy people and an unholy people can be put back into fellowship with a holy God and that all comes through sacrifices this beautiful picture of death which secures life and effects reconciliation that's priestly work but that's not the whole of the priestly work the Levites were entrusted with teaching they were entrusted with communicating and proclaiming that's what wasn't going on in the days of Malachi. It's what did go on in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that is what the Levitical priests did. And the support of the Levitical priests was in order that the Gospel in Israel might be preserved and proclaimed. And the tithe, this tenth thing, was to be set apart in support of the preservation and proclamation of the gospel, all with a view to its ultimate completeness and fullness and fulfillment in the promised Redeemer, the seed of Abraham, Abraham, who would be a blessing to the nations, who would be a savior not of a particular nation, but who would be the savior of the world, one descendant who would come. And the Levites were charged with responsibility for keeping that hope alive through the sacrificial system and through the teaching of the Word of God. Now, in these last minutes, I want us to think of this sermon as a kind of a continuation of last week. In the context Of giving as gratitude for God's goodness, giving as gratitude for God's grace, and in the context of this idea of tithing, the tenth, the bringing of the tenth in order to preserve, to secure, to safeguard the preservation and the proclamation of the gospel. I want you to think with me. I want to answer a question. And then I want to suggest that there is still a different way. First, the question wait a second. That tithing business isn't even mentioned in the New Testament, it's an Old Testament thing. And doesn't Paul say we are no longer under law, but under grace? Does tithing still apply? Well, I can do you one better. Tithing is mentioned in the New Testament. And as nearly as I can tell, in my counting of the references that there are to tithing in the New Testament, and there are either two or three specific references, wherever tithing is mentioned, it is in connection with, either explicitly or implicitly with denunciations Matthew 23:23 23, 23, Jesus condemns the Pharisees who tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law tithing in the context of ruthless denunciation And then by implication, Luke 18 12, it is the self righteous Pharisee who prides himself in giving tithes of all that he has. By implication, self righteousness. And tithing as an evidence of self righteousness is denounced by Jesus. So, see, I can do you one better. It is mentioned, but wherever it's mentioned, it's denounced. Let's be clear about some things as we think about this matter of tithing. And as we think about this question of whether we are under law or under grace. Let's be clear about what we're talking about with respect to the tithe. A tithe is a tenth. It's a tenth of your grain. It's a tenth of your flocks. It's a tenth of your apples. It's a tenth of whatever. whatever. If you have sheep and your sheep produce ten lambs, one of them is given to God. If you're a a grain farmer and you have 10 bushels of grain, one bushel is given to God. That's the tithe, 10%. Here's the second thing. All of Israel was to tithe, and that tithe was given to the Levites so that they could do the work that we've talked about. The reference is Numbers 18, verses 21 to 24. Numbers 18, 21 to 24. Third thing the Levites were to tithe as well. They were to tithe the tithe. They were to tithe what they received. And their tithe was to be used specifically to support the specific groups of priests whose responsibility it was to fulfill their roles as ministering priests in the temple. And if you want the reference for that, it's Numbers 18. 25 to 31. So everybody was doing it. Everybody was doing it. The shepherds, the farmers, the priests, everyone was involved in this. Here's the fourth thing. That wasn't all. There was yet another tithe, And the references are Deuteronomy 12, 8 through 19, and Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 27. And those passages describe a tithe, yet another tithe, and that tithe is set aside for a feast a feast that is to be conducted in a specific place, and that place was Jerusalem. And everybody was to come to Jerusalem. Provision was made not only for those who could tithe, but provision was made for the Levites, and provision was made for male and female slaves for the entire household so that everybody could come together and celebrate a feast in Jerusalem in gratitude to God. And you've got to read these passages because what God admonishes these people to do with this tithe is enjoy themselves with food, with beverage, with praising and singing for a week. That's a party. That's a party. But that's not all. If you read Deuteronomy fourteen twenty-eight to 29 it describes yet another tithe to be collected, collected every three years, and that tithe is collected specifically for the widow, the orphan, the alien, and even the non-Jew in the land, the sojourner. Yet another tithe collected every three years. And the particular beneficiaries of that tribe tithe are the needy. But even that isn't the end. That isn't the end. You Read Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 to 22, and this is a passage I do want to read. This is the passage I alluded to last week, in which God encourages His people when they harvest, that they not harvest all the way into the corners, all the way to the edges of their fields. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 24, 19 and following. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. Leave it there. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And then verse 22. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. One of the things I've been trying to say through this whole series is that this business of giving whether it's Genesis 4 Exodus 36 Malachi 3 this business of giving is always deeply embedded rooted in an acknowledgement of the grace of God why does God tell his people not not to harvest into the very corners, right up to the very edges. Why does he tell them when you're trucking all the stuff back to the barns and something falls off the cart, don't pick it up. Leave it there. Leave it there for the fatherless. Leave it there for the sojourner. Leave it for the widow. Leave it for the poor. Don't go through your olive trees twice, just once. Leave it there. Why? Here's why. Remember, you are a slave You experienced lavish grace. Be an evidence of what you have experienced to those around you. Be an evidence that in this kingdom, we do things differently. Not only do we pay a fair wage, we pay better than a fair wage. We do things differently in this kingdom. You see what all of this is? I mean, the first thing, conclusion to be drawn is this, that the average Israelite gave way more than 10%. Gave way more than 10%. To care for the gospel, to party, and to care for widows and orphans and aliens and strangers, the poor, those who are disadvantaged and on the margins, and who are aliens in their midst. They gave way more than 10%. But here's the other thing, and we cannot lose sight of this. Israel, listen to this, Israel was under grace every bit as much as you and I. Every bit as much. Remember, you were a slave in Egypt, and I redeemed and deliver you delivered you and brought you out of your hard bondage and brought you to myself at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, and married you, wed you to myself and promised you then that I would bless you and prosper you, preserve you and protect you and you have experienced it. You see, Israel was every bit as much under grace as you and I are. Israel experienced the lavish love of God as you and I have. In prophetic form, in seed form, to be sure. Not experiencing that lavish grace and that lavish goodness to the extent that we have, but experience that they did. And their giving was always to be mimicking God who is lavish and liberal. Israel was under grace. They were the beneficiaries of grace. When Paul says in Romans 6.14, and this isn't, all that there is to be said about this there is so much more but when paul says in romans 6:14 as well as other places you are not under law but under grace here is what he means he means you are no longer under law's bondage you are no longer under the law's judgments The law is no longer a threat to you. The partnership between sin and law that leads to condemnation is dead. You are no longer a prisoner to these things. You are free. You say, haven't things changed? Haven't things changed since the other side of the cross? Absolutely they've changed. Absolutely, they've changed. There's no longer a temple because the perfect temple has come. Right? Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He is the temple. Peter says, we are the living stones being built into that temple. A permanent habitation for Almighty God. If things changed, you bet they've changed. There's no longer sacrifice in that temple because the perfect sacrifice has come, Jesus. The imperfect, the shadow, the thing that points to a fulfillment is no longer needed when the perfection comes. There's no longer a particular group of people who are priests because the perfect priest has come. What is interesting is that Jesus, the perfect priest who has come, has made all of us, male, female, young, and old, He has made all of us to be priests to our God in fulfillment of God's declared intention in Exodus 19. You will be to me a kingdom of priests. so much has changed. So much has changed that while Israel was under grace and we are under grace, so much has changed, my friends, that our gladness should be even greater than the gladness of the Israelites. Because the fullness has come. So what about tithing? Well, let me say two things. Let me paint a picture for you. Let me paint a picture for you. Imagine. This is the first of the two. Imagine that you are a Gentile living in Corinth. And you hear that this Paul character is there and that he's in the local synagogue. Now, you're a Gentile. You know that it's, it's the case that Gentiles do make their way to the synagogue. Probably lots of reasons for why they make their way to the synagogue. But in the synagogue, you will find Gentiles in Corinth in 51, 52, 53 AD. And so you make your way to the synagogue because you want to hear this Paul who does go to synagogues to preach the gospel. It's only when he gets kicked out of the synagogue that he rents a hall someplace to preach the gospel there. He goes to synagogues and and you, a Gentile, you want to hear what this guy has to say. So you go here and preach. And what he says captivates you. You've got enough little nuggets that have come to you from Jewish connections and friends that you may have. And this kind of thing happened. I'm not making this up. This kind of thing happened. You've got enough little nuggets of truth. That you're captured by what the Apostle Paul says about the promise of a Redeemer and the fact that this Redeemer has come. And when this Redeemer comes, He sets people free from sin and death and bondage. And you begin to respond. And you go the next week and you hear Him again. And by the third week, you're embracing this and you're thinking, I want to know what is the truth about this Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, you find yourself being drawn into this thing. And actually making a commitment to Christ. That, that that happened. And then you hear that the gospel needs support. I'm not making this up, okay? It's easy to imagine this. You hear that the gospel needs support. And so you go talk to a Jewish friend who has also embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And... and and you ask your Jewish friend, how do we, how, what do you do? How do we do this? How do we support the gospel? And your Jewish friend says, well, you know, the only thing I know to do is to go to the Bible and ask the Bible the question, what do we do to support the gospel? And in our tradition, woven into the fabric of our tradition, is this business of the tithe. See, those 39 books are the only Bible that you have in 48, 49, or 50 A.D., the other New Testament documents, they're not there yet. The only Bible you have is the Old Testament. And you go to the Bible because the Bible is the Word of God, and in the Bible is contained the wisdom of God. And so this Jewish friend of yours says, well, you know, I don't know. You got any goats? You got any corn? You got any... No, I don't have anything. I've got a little business over here. Well, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe what you should do is give a tenth of your paycheck. I mean, at the end of the week, you look at what you've taken in, take care of your family, do some right, wise things, I don't know, but maybe you just give a tenth of what you take in each week. I don't think that's a stretch, folks. I don't think it's a stretch that in some sense, people who were becoming Christians, being converted under the gospel of Christ... We're consulting the book, the 39 books of the Old Testament, to understand giving as a response to God's goodness, giving as a response to God's grace, and the idea of the tithe as a way to measure how we give and think about how we give. I don't think any of it is a stretch. But here's the second thing we're still not into the New Testament. And when you get into the New Testament, you get to Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. A humble widow. A humble widow. We don't have time now to unpack this whole passage. But let me just suggest to you that this humble widow understood these things and saw the temple as the place where those who were estranged from God might find reconciliation with God and her response to that amazing grace was to give everything she had. See, that's the stunning thing. We can go through the New Testament. I know this is tough, folks. I'm challenged by this every bit as much as you are. We can go through the New Testament and we can say tithing isn't mentioned or when it is mentioned, it's denounced. But you see what happens in the New Testament? because we live under the reign of grace, this lavish grace that has been poured out upon us in and through Jesus Christ. The bar goes from here to here. Jesus holds this woman up as the picture, the model of what real giving is. It is giving everything. And I would suggest to you and to myself, I want to suggest this to you and I want to ask you to pray about it, pray with me about it. We haven't given until we feel it. We haven't given until we feel it. Barbara and I were living in Orlando when I made my first trip to Tanzania. I came back from my first trip to Tanzania having visited pastors who live in mud huts, dirt floors, who at great cost to themselves and their families, preach and herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. I came back with this this lunatic idea in my head that maybe what we could do as a church, just one church, is establish a program whereby a stateside family could support an indigenous missionary, a Tanzanian pastor, with a minimal amount of support, just a minimal amount of support, $25 a month, which for a Tanzanian pastor represents about half of what a government worker would receive or a teacher in a government school. $25 a month, less than half of what a government worker would receive. Crazy idea. Could we maybe support 130, 140, 150 pastors by setting aside $30 a month. After that sermon, the first person to approach me was a 74-year-old woman who came up to me and said, Oh, good, I can work a third job and support a Tanzanian pastor. 74 years old, who was abandoned by her husband and two young children who continued to work and who at 83 years old still works to this day because she was abandoned by her husband, minimally skilled, doesn't have the ability to stop working, has to keep working, said to me, oh, good, I can work a third job and support a Tanzanian pastor. That's humbling, folks, to have someone like that respond. That's New Testament giving. That's New Testament giving. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is challenging to us. It is hard for us. It's hard for me. And I confess to you before my brothers and sisters that I don't feel any pain. I I pray, O oh Lord, as we as we live under the reality of this greater grace, greater even than that experienced by the Israelites as we live under the influence and are the beneficiaries of this lavish grace. Looking to you, Lord Jesus, who though rich for our sakes became poor so that through your poverty we might become wildly rich. Would you work in our hearts Would you help me? Would you help us? So that we, in some respect, at some level, might be as lavish in response to this gospel as you are lavish in giving it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.